0: Hi everyone, it's Mind Rolling and I am back and I am with Sally Quinn. And I'm really happy to have you here, Sally, and uh, so welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you.
0: Sally wrote uh, well, let's let's start with uh, I know of Sally, although well before she wrote this book, and uh she She's a longtime Washington Post journalist and columnist columnist, and was a television commentator and right in the thick of it all in Washington through many, many, many years and was married to Ben Bradley, who any of you who don't know who Sally is now, uh, there's a movie out called The Post, uh, and it is uh, is primarily uh, featuring... Ben Bradley and what went on with the Pentagon Papers and the Washington Post with Catherine Graham. And uh, I just watched that, Sally, by the way. And uh, I guess the gal who played Ben's wife was his previous wife in that uh, incarnation, (laughs) right? right?
1: (laughs) And Tom Hanks played Ben, and Meryl Streep played Kay, Catherine Graham.
0: Yeah, an incredible job both of them did.
1: Well, also, you know, there was a documentary about Ben that came out this fall from HBO that was called The Newspaper Man, which was very, very well done.
0: Um, oh, a, God, a I'm sorry I didn't so. see that. Oh, great. Well, well you should a, watch it because it's really, yeah.
1: it's fascinating.
0: Yeah? Okay, we will do. we Will do. So... Sally's had quite a life. I I live uh, in the South now, but I'm originally, I'm Canadian. I'm from Montreal, although I've spent a large part of my life here in the States. I'm a citizen now, a dual. And I live, uh, Sally, I live in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, which is the first time I've been anywhere near the South, moved here because my wife-to-be moved here. And I followed her here. I was out in L.A. I had a record company out there. And... Uh, Sally is from the South, and that is the beginning of uh, let's let's really hear a little bit about your upbringing, because from where you started to where you ended up, in many ways, is quite a journey. And I think it would be great for people to just get a little idea of of your upbringing and uh, where and and the when.
1: Well, my mother was from Savannah, Georgia. And I was born in Savannah, Georgia, and my father was off in World War II um, at the time, and then later ended up in Korea, and um, and so we spent time in Statesboro, Georgia, which is where my mother's family was from, uh, in the summers, and while my father was away at war, living in Savannah and Statesboro, Georgia, which is about a tiny little town outside of Savannah, and we lived that that my my uh, Ancestors were McDougals. They were all Scots who had come down from North Carolina uh, with the turpentine trade, and they had built this huge plantation house, beautiful white columns, you know, the old traditional Southern uh, mansion. And um, so we uh, we spent all this time there. And th- my aunt Ruth played the organ in the local church, Presbyterian church, but she also had a whole another whole religious or faith or spiritual life, which was that, uh, she was part of that, the, 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 whole, um, Scottish stones believing in the, and the stones and, and, uh, and time travel and, and the occult and, uh, okay. palmistry and tarot cards and astrology and psychic phenomenon and voodoo and, um, And so I I was brought up with that. I mean, I'd go to Sunday school, but, you know, this was my, what I call my embedded religion, because that's what I was brought up with, and that's what I believed um, um, all of my life. And then then you get to a point in your life where, uh, for instance, if you're a Catholic and you're brought up to believe that if you sin, you're going to burn in hell for eternity, and then you grow up and you think, oh, I, I don't really believe this. However... If you do something really bad, you know, there's this little thing in the back of your brain that says, oh, my God, am I going to burn in hell forever? So even though I, you know, intellectually, this didn't make any sense, it worked for me and I believed it. And a lot of these things I still do. I mean, I still follow astrology and I read tarot cards and palms and I am psychic. And my mother was, my aunt was, my grandmother, my um, my sister. We all we all have some psychic abilities, and so the, the ghosts. We had the house was haunted, of course. Right. Um, what southern mansion is not haunted? Uh, and so that so that was my my religious upbringing, and and it sort of followed me through my life in in, in various ways and superstitions and and you know I I did start this website uh, for the Washington Post, a religion website, but. You know, once I sort of got to be <clears throat> and I, I, I Became an atheist very early on in my life because my father was in World War II and he liberated Dachau and he had photographs taken of all of the Emaciated bodies and piles of dead bodies and and he had a scrapbook made and <clears throat> excuse me and He hid them and I found them and I asked him what had happened and he said You know, this is uh, this is explained what what the Nazis did. And I said, Daddy, did God know about this? And he said, yes, he did. And I said, well, how is it possible that he could let this happen? And he said, well, God works in mysterious ways. And I cried myself to sleep that night. And all I could think about were these little Jewish children in the in the concentration camps and their parents praying for their survival. And they're praying to the same God I'm praying to every night to bless my mother and my father and my sister and my brother. And look what happened to them. And so it became clear to me that there was no such thing as God. And that's when I stopped believing in God when I was... although I didn't learn the word atheist until I was 13 and all that time I thought you know that I was the only person in the world who didn't believe in God and I was just really embarrassed and ashamed and horrified and scared and everything else it was such a uh, uh, such an incredible liberation to find that there were people who were atheists who didn't believe in God And so for the rest of my life, I was an atheist until I started this religion website for the post 11 years ago. And I, I, I started, I backed into it because I didn't, I didn't start it because I was religious. I started because as a journalist, I felt that we weren't covering religion and, and religion has such a, played a huge role in American politics and foreign policy. And so it was really based on that when I first started it. And, um, but then I began to study religion. I, I one of my close friends, John Meacham, is a religion scholar and a, and a historian. And he had said to me, "You're not an atheist." And I said, "Oh, yes, I am." And he said, "Oh, no, you're not." Yeah, I love that And,
0: part.
1: <laughs> and he said, "Well, you know, why, you, you don't know anything about religion." And so he said, "Why don't you study religion?" And he gave me a list of books to read. And he said, "Then, if you decide after that that you don't believe, then fine. But at least you will have." learned something and read something and then thought about it. And I, you know, that I started, that started me on a study of, of religion and not just one faith, but many, fa- all faiths. And I just became consumed with it. I, I was just obsessed with the whole idea. And I still find it the most fascinating subject there is because I think that, you know, 95% of the people on this planet, their lives are informed or led in some way by some belief in, in a faith and I kept thinking to myself there are all these smart people out there who actually do believe in God so and millions and billions of people on the earth and so there must be something there I've got to figure out what it is and so you know I went in I did do this study of religion and and I came away toward the end and you know I, I had to finish the book it came out in September, and you know, I was on deadline and I was about two months before I had to finish the book. I thought, oh my God, I have got to figure out the meaning of life. (laughs) 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 And And I've only got two months to do it, but I did, I, you know, I really thought about it for, of course, years, but in the end, I realized that I had I don't call myself an atheist anymore because I think that's a negative word, and I'm not a negative person. And besides, I don't think anybody knows. I don't. The word agnostic doesn't mean anything to me because it just means you don't know, and nobody knows. My favorite bumper sticker is "I don't know, and you don't either." <laughs> and um, so I, but I found many things about many religions that I really loved, and that I, um, I sort of adopted in my own sort of faith practice and beliefs and views and perceptions and so i mean i I guess you could say i sort of cherry-picked from a lot of religions and then i sort of made up my own religion and my own sense of spirituality and so if somebody asks you what you are i ask me what i am i simply say i have a religion of my own and i think most of us do uh, because I think if you walk into a national cathedral with 3,000 people or a synagogue or a mosque with that many people, every single person there does not believe exactly the same thing. I mean, if they have a relationship with God or with Jesus, or it's, a, it's got to be personal. And so everyone's beliefs are mm. personal. No one believes exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah. I went to India. I'm Jewish. I, I was completely, utterly disenchanted with religion and disenchanted with the whole process that I had to go through, my father dragging me to the synagogue and the whole nine yards. And it wasn't, so I was a pretty unhappy young man, teenager. And it wasn't until uh, psychedelics came along in the mid-60s uh, that I started, and I I did psychedelics and then had an understanding there was something that c- uh, connected us all and there was something that connected me to a deeper place. All of the usual stuff uh, using psychedelics and um, and when I went to India with Ramdas, I he went back the second time because he had came back and said, I met this incredible being, and so a few of us, he said, I can't tell you who he is or where he, where he is, but a few of us twisted his arm and went over to India and, and did meet him, and uh, so what does he start talking about? T- two major things, I mean, and it's just what you're saying here, and one was, he'd point his finger at like this, and he'd go in Hindi, sub ek, all one, it's all one, Christ, Krishna, Buddha, Mohammed—all yeah. one. So he immediately inst- installed that, instilled that in us, and then all he did for those f- first weeks or whatever, or actually for a long time, was talk about Christ. Wow. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, Christ—I don't even have any idea. I was taught in school that Christ wasn't good. Actually, you know, uh, from people who had actually been in in the camps and so on, they were my teachers that were really negative and you know very wounded obviously people so we were completely turned around back to where we came from going to india if you could imagine such a thing but it but it completely became um, whatever served us was what we used to go further inside of ourselves and and, and it was i that whenever the word religion comes up to me it's I can't relate. I can't relate to the word God. Never mind religion, it, as a it's such a it's it's a charged thing. And what does it really mean for any one person? You know, Buddha mind. I might like that a little bit better. You know how the Buddhists describe it, uh, but uh, just the. Oh, no, I uh, think
1: yeah. I think you know. in, when I, uh, the title of my book is Finding Magic. Yeah. And magic is. I use the word magic for God. um, yeah. Because it's we're all looking for meaning in our lives. We're, lo- we're looking for the transcendent. We're looking for some sense of the divine. And we're looking for magic. And y- you can call it anything you want. Um, and God means, I've, I've interviewed so many people and not one person has ever had the same definition of
0: God. Yeah, God yeah.
1: But the other thing is that I, I call myself a, a, a Christian with a small c, because I do believe that Christ was an extraordinary man. And, you know, I mean, the the, the the Islam, you know, they recognize Christ as one of the great prophets. Most religions do recognize Christ as being an extraordinary prophet, if not necessarily the son of God as Christians. And in fact, a lot of Christians don't really believe that jesus was the son of god but yeah. but his teachings are something worthy to be followed and so i'd like to be considered when you say well that's not very christian of somebody you don't necessarily mean that that person doesn't believe that jesus was the son of god you just mean that their behavior that they're yeah. they're not their goodness their kindness their va- values and ethics and morals
0: yeah but there's uh, the thread of this but in terms of uh, you, you have a great interpretation, a definition, rather, of God in this book. It's not a direct one, but it's to me it's the theme of your book on two levels. Uh, and one, and well, let me just read this little part for people who are listening. Sometimes when I feel I can't possibly fit any more love into my brain or my body, I'm filled up again. I'm never on empty, never have been. In the end, it's the only thing that matters. I really think how you love is what defines you. What did I do? What have I done with all this love that keeps coming at me? I pass it around, give it away as fast as I can, because I know it will be replenished. That makes me happy. That knowledge gives meaning to my life. It took me a long time, too long, to learn love's lessons. I also figured out the big question, Where does it come from, this never-ending waterfall of love? It was still mysterious to me, but I was increasingly aware of a meaningful spiritual presence much greater than myself. There was a larger force guiding me, but I wasn't quite ready to call it God. (laughs) That says it all as far as I'm... I mean, that's my experience, that spiritual presence and love and the sharing of it uh, ramdas talks a lot of, about this these days and you know there's a lot of questioning of course what's we're in a very very tough period right now what's going yeah. on in this country and this world i
1: think we uh, i think somebody wrote the other day that we're in a state of collective trauma
0: yeah and very I think much that's so that's true yeah so when people say ramdas what do you what what do you do or what should we do what can we do social action and so on and Change your heart, and then heart to heart to heart, we can change, and that's uh, that's been his message, and and it's what you it's what you're talking about right here. So uh, yeah, I think this is the grand definition. Now the other thing in the book that's so amazing to me is, of course, this love affair with your husband, Ben Bradley, and the kind of. Devotion to each other that you had—that's described in this book—is um, is something to aspire. I felt okay. This is something to aspire to. You know, I'm on third marriage, ten years in, and you know, working on it. Okay, we're still working on it. And the way that uh, just just talk a little bit about that because that meeting with Ben and and these the subsequent. Uh, a a part of the book that really is focused on your relationship is is pretty important
1: well i i met ben when i was asked to have a job interview with the editor of the editorial page and he took me in to meet ben and um i was 29 at the time and he was 20 years older and married and i was completely dazzled by him i mean i just thought that he was the most extraordinary man first of all he was incredibly good-looking and very sexy and dynamic and just he was just everything you know swashbuckling and charismatic and um but i you know he was like a god if you'll pardon the expression (laughs) he was mr bradley the editor of the washington post uh and then as it turned out i didn't work at the Post then, and several years later he called and asked if I would come in to be, be for an interview, and I went in and he wanted me to cover parties for the Washington Post. I, I was at that time the social secretary, for the, or had been the social secretary for the Algerian ambassador. I knew Washington's social life very well. And uh, he said, have you ever written anything? And I said, no. And he said, well, nobody's perfect, you're hired. <laughs> and at that, at that time, we spent about a half an hour together. But the electricity between us was just extraordinary. I mean, that the, the connection was just made. And both of us just looked at each other. I mean, I wasn't looking at him as a potential husband. I was just looking at him as somebody that I felt this connection to that I had never felt that way before. And I think, yeah, I mean, he later did talk about how we were both sort of blown away by each other, but it was four years and f- until four years later that w- that we got together, and that was, and we didn't actually get together. We went down to the convention together in um, to Miami and Nixon's second convention, and uh, we flew down together on the plane. And by the time we got to Miami, I was madly in love with him, and he later admitted he was in love with me asked me to have dinner but it couldn't it never worked out because he had to be with other other reporters and we just never and it was of course it was right in the middle of watergate so that was very dicey and you know he they were all being woodward and bernstein and ben their phones were being tapped and they were being followed and you know there was was just easily blackmailable. And I finally just said to a friend of mine, you know, I'm just so much in love with him. I can't stand it. And I'm going to have to tell him. And he said, no, you can't. Because if you do, he might take you up on it. Probably will. And then, you know, you could put everything in jeopardy. The story, the posts, the wow. journalism, the country. You have to put your country first, he said, which was the only thing as an army brat, he probably could have said that, that, <laughs> that convinced me. And so I took a job several months later as the first network anchor woman in America and New York just to get away from Ben because I just felt it was too impossible. And when I left, I asked him to take me for a farewell lunch and I told him that I was leaving because I was in love with him. And I, th- I expected him to say, there, there, dear girl, go, be- go to New York, be with your boyfriend and live happily ever after. And he said, I can't believe you're telling me this because I'm in love with you and we got wow. together that night and um and 40 we were together for 43 years wow. and uh, i mean listen we didn't we fought i mean we had fights just like other couples but i think that i mean one of the things that i think that keeps marriages together is that we just had an enormous sexual attraction to each other for one thing i mean we were just couldn't stay away from each other and We were both dazzled by each other. I mean, we had such a good time and we laughed and we had fun together, but we were both madly in love with each other. And I think that's the only way you can start a marriage If because, you know, things go bad sometimes and there are ups and downs and you've got to have that as a baseline. You've got to have that. Well, of love to draw from, and I mean, one friend said he once saw Ben and me have an argument. He said it was like listening to Zeus and Hera (laughs) having a fight. You know, I mean, we went at each other, and Ben would sort of because I was—he's tough. Ben was tough, and so was I. And he'd say, "I wake up every morning with my dukes up," (laughs) but we just didn't go to bed mad. You know, it just Mm. didn't. You know, and and that—that's part of the secret too. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it's not just loving somebody, but cherishing that person. And mm-hmm. and there was never a moment. I mean, I, I, you know, I just, when he walked in the door at night, I would just feel, I would be thrilled. I mean, I would always run to him and throw my arms around him. And you could see he was so happy to see me. And I just think that, but, I, but we it takes work. I mean, I worked on it. Um, I made sure that I I did everything I could to make him happy and comfortable and feel loved and cherished. And um, and it does work. But you have to pay attention. You have to listen to each other and you have to respect each other.
0: Okay. You have to. New book, Sally Quinn. How to maintain and nourish (laughs) a marriage. Okay. I think you you have something to offer there big time. So. Oh boy. Well, there was a time in the book and talking about that t- period of time which I'm very familiar with. I was on the uh, in being in Canada, we were helping draft dodgers get over, you know, escaping the war and so on. That's what I was doing in Montreal just at that time, you know, mid-60s and so on. Um and you actually, at some point, probably more around 70, I think, you went to Vietnam with your boyfriend at the time?
1: Yes, Warren Hoag, yeah.
0: And got into a... He was working...
1: Yeah, we got in a firefight. He, well, Warren was at the New York Post, and he was slated to be the editor of the New York Post, and the the owner, Dolly Schiff, didn't want him to go to Vietnam, because she didn't want to lose him, and he wanted to... He had volunteered to go over there and cover the war, and... I was, I, you know, I'd had enough of war, seeing it with hand up close with my father and in Korea and being in a hospital with wounded soldiers for almost a year. And I, so I, I was not glamorized by war, but I really was curious to see Saigon. And so we went to Vietnam on our vacation and stayed with the Newsweek bureau chief, who was one of our closest friends. And we had a lot of good friends over there who were covering it and uh, one day we asked to go out into the countryside and our host said, you don't want to do that. That's crazy. And, but the Newsweek guide, the, the translator, said he would take us. And so we drove out for half a day and took a picnic lunch. And we didn't see, you know, we saw rice paddies and people carrying things, uh, you know, mothers and children and all that. And then turn, we, as we turned around to come back, we heard all this gunfire, and we realized that we were in the middle of a firefight. And he just, the driver just screamed at us and said, get down on the floor. And of course, we both thought we were dead. And he just zigzagged, you know, trying to avoid the fire until we got back to to Saigon. But it was quite terrifying. And, um, you mm-hmm. know, I just have enormous respect for journalists who cover wars, and, and of course, enormous respect for those who fight. Wars
0: as my father did. Yeah. And in in the book, though, you say instead what you came away with was a revulsion for the Washington Power Center, for those who had gotten us into what I concluded was this hateful war, and then were too cowardly to admit that they were wrong and got us in even deeper to protect their own reputations. They lied to the American people and they lied in the most cynical way to those who were fighting. They seemed not to care and tried to make us all believe we were fighting for freedom and for the good of the country. It's not that I hadn't known this already. Somehow, somehow I hadn't wanted to admit it. The reality of it was too painful to accept. After all, I had met quite a few of the people who were responsible. I didn't view them, or at least all of them, as evil, but I was convinced that what they did was evil. That experience changed me as a reporter and as a person. As a reporter, it expanded my world, enhancing my perceptions and observations and adding to my questions. As a person, it focused my attention on the importance of morality in politics and in my life. How to live became much more of a factor in my thinking, more than it ever had before. So this was obviously a seminal experience in your life. It was, it
1: was. Well, and then, I mean, you know, living through Vietnam and of course my father in the beginning was in favor of the war because he was a general and you know the president says we're going to war as your commander chief is giving you an order and but I he and 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 the other generals slowly changed their mind because they felt that and for different reasons than I did but they felt that if you're going to fight a war you should be able to win it and what they felt was just evil was that they were sending all these boys over there to die, knowing that we were losing the war. These the generals knew we were losing the war, and that they were dying needlessly. When if they wanted to end the war, they would have gone, you know, and bombed Hanoi. Uh, now that's not what I would have done, but 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 they they came away with the same idea that it was an evil war and it was unjustified, and all of these people were dying needlessly.
0: Yeah, and one of the core things that in the book and and so much anybody can relate to, especially if you were in your formative years back at that time in the seventies was certainly of course, what people, everybody, you can watch the posts and see the whole drama around the Pentagon papers. And, um, and then later Watergate, we were, (laughs) I was sitting with Ramdas and a couple of other people in the middle of New York city working on a, on a, Uh, an LP project of talks and music, you know, consciousness uh, record set called Love, Serve, Remember, which is what the in the end our foundation is called. It's what we got. That's the only instructions we got from Neem Karoli Baba. Love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. Feed people. And so that's that's how we... So we're in the midst of doing this with the TV on 24-7 watching Watergate. Right. Yeah. And meanwhile, your husband to be at that point still, right? When when did you? Oh actually... yeah,
1: we didn't we didn't get married until several years after Watergate. After
0: that, yeah. But well, of course, we you got,
1: we got together in the middle of Watergate, so we yeah. were living together then.
0: Yeah, and we well knew who Ben was, and of course Bob and, and uh, Woodward and and Carl Bernstein, mm-hmm. and so reading the book is like a little bit of a acid flashback may i say <laughs> back into that time which was yeah. such a crucial time and now here we are now what in the world would ben think of this of what is going on right now what could he, and the washington post being right in the center of the post and the times as it is
1: well i um you know I, I, a number of people have asked me that as you can imagine yeah, and of uh, course. and i and i think um first of all um You know Ben's Ben was not ideological Really? I mean he was a Democrat he voted as Democrat, but he was he was predominantly a journalist and his uh, his view of What his role was is to protect the First Amendment and to get the story and to get it, right? So I think that his feeling right now would be um, I think he would be appalled at what's happening but I think he would see it as a great story, which it is, mm-hmm. uh, on the one hand, and see it as a great story. And, and his view would be to get it, get the story, get it first, but get it right. Get it right, get it right, get it right. And, I, and you've seen the few times that reporters have made errors, um, the Trump people have gone berserk and sort of said, you see, they're all fake news and yeah. they're lying. Lying the lying media and enemies of the people. So you cannot you can't make mistakes You can't give them that ammunition. So I think that um, You know, I, I, I think that you know, there's a, a huge wall a Two-story high wall in the Washington Post next to the Ben Bradley conference room and it has a quote from Ben Saying the truth no matter how bad is never as dangerous as a lie and um, he just couldn't stand the lying. The lying made him crazy. So I think, you know, he would be incredibly proud of the Washington Post and the work that we are doing now and, and the kind of reporting we're doing now. And I think he would have enjoyed the competition that we have with the New York Times because I think both, both papers spur each other on. And I think that I, I haven't, this was not true during Watergate, but there is a sense of camaraderie. And and that and respect, uh, you know, when the Times breaks a big story, I mean, obviously the people at the Post wish we had gotten it first, but on the other hand, they're glad that somebody has broken the story. So yeah. I, I think that Ben would have respected that happening, and and the comp. It's almost like watching a tennis match at Wimbledon. You know, the Post hits one, and then the Times hits one, and yeah. the Post hits one. But I also think that uh, on the other side of it is that he would say, This is a great story and let's get it. But I also think that he would be um, really, really upset and concerned about what's happening to our country because he was, uh, the First Amendment was extremely important to him, but he was first and foremost a patriot and an American and he fought in World War II. And I think that he would be um, just. Deeply, deeply concerned about what's happening right now.
0: Yeah, to say the least. There's a a great quote in, in this. There's a lot of great quotes, Sally. I love I love these quotes. You know, chapter heading quotes that you'd put in here. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, but this one in particular is from Viktor Frankl from Man's Search for Meaning. Credible, credible being he is. If there's a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. This, this a little bit addresses the whole thing, of course, what happened in the, uh, to the Jews in Second World War. Suffering is an eradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. So as much love is in your book, as is in this book on multiple levels, which really gets transmitted. There's plenty of suffering, and uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about how that. Uh, uh, I mean, we in in this this is a tough concept, but in in India, uh, Maharaji used to say, "Suffering brings me closer to God," and he kept repeating that, and it was a way to kind of imbue in us. Uh, stop running from it stop pushing it away get embrace it a little bit and make friends with it i mean he never said anything like that but this is my own personal thing about mm-hmm. cuz we all have this suffering talk about it in your in your own life cuz uh, certainly especially with your child that that was really tough stuff i went through something similar actually so i could relate
1: well i think the most important thing is that nobody gets a pass yeah. Nobody gets a pass. You know, we all suffer in some way in our lives. Now, this is the one area that really um, I find that I cannot accept about religion and religious faith, religious faith um, is the idea of suffering, which is called theodicy. Um, how can an all powerful, all loving, I mean, omnipotent, omniscient God? allow there to be suffering on this earth. It's like my father, my asking my father, how how could God let this happen? Mm -hmm. And of all the people I've interviewed over all the years, not one person has been able to give me a satisfactory answer. And I think that's because there is no answer. And um, there's, and it it doesn't make any sense to me how uh, on any level, and I've tried to look at it every way, doesn't make any sense it is part of life but i don't because of that i do not worship a god because i couldn't worship a being a creature an it or whatever it is i couldn't worship something or someone who could allow the kind of suffering that exists on this earth Um, and you know i mean i've had a very lucky life you know i remember when ben wrote his book And he called it, the title of it was A Good Life. And at that point, we were going through all these problems with my son, Quinn, who was born with a hole in his heart and had learning, severe learning disabilities and was sick most of his early life until he was a late teenager. And and he's 35 now and and still has medical problems. He wears a pacemaker. but I spent the first 16 years of my life in children's hospital and he was near death a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at Ben at one point, I was saying, how could you title your book a good life when we've had so much suffering around our child and seen our child suffer so much. And, you know, I mean, Ben was sort of, he was, as I said, 20 years older than I was and more philosophical, he said, because on the whole, I think, I have had a really good life and a wonderful life. And when I pull myself back now, I look back and I say, I have had a really wonderful life and a good life. And I'm filled with gratitude every moment for Quinn, who is now thriving and engaged to a beautiful girl and happy and working. And he has a website for young adults with learning disabilities called friendsofquinn.com. Uh, and and so so that that suffering was something that I, I you know, you know, you I didn't embrace it. I but I dealt with it and tried to make the best of it and tried to be as strong as I could, because my job really was to support Quinn and to to help him grow and thrive. Uh, and in a way, it was because he did survive what was harder in a way was watching Ben get dementia and watching him mm-hmm. decline mm-hmm. because yeah. that went on for, I mean, he was diagnosed eight years before he died in the last two years. He really couldn't function. I mean, very well. And I, you know, I literally, I slept in the bed with him every night until he died. I never had a nurse take care of him. But I mean, I had to bathe him, and I had to get in the shower with him and, and wash him. I had to teach him how to brush his teeth. He couldn't. I had to brush his teeth and get him dressed. And he was sundowning. He'd get up at you know two in the morning and say, "I have to go to the White House to meet the president." You know that kind of thing. And and um, it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. And just to watch the person that you love the most just slowly disappear away from you, but not die. That was, that was really incredibly painful, and that, there was a lot of suffering there. But I also have to say that those last two years with Ben, which were the worst in some ways, were also the most spiritual experience. That was the most spiritual experience I ever had in my life, being with him and taking care of him, because he was finally this tough macho guy you know, who I who I had been madly in love with all these years, was suddenly allowed himself to be vulnerable in a way I had never seen him be vulnerable. And so he let me take care of him in a way he Mm, had not done before and let me love him in the way that I needed to love him. And in fact, the last I think those last two years were the happiest years of our marriage in an odd way. We were I was more in love with him the day he died than I ever had been.
0: And I think he was me. Wow. That's all I gotta say. Wow. Now back to the suffering. You do say in the, in your book you quote uh uh is it Robert Rohr, the priest?
1: Uh, Richard Rohr. Richard, yeah. Richard Rohr, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, who I've wanted to talk to myself. Uh and he's he quote, absolutely he's brilliant. He's yeah. Brilliant. I I know I've read some of his stuff. Uh but he quotes Carl Jung, and I think we both have um an affection for Carl Jung about his point, that so much unnecessary suffering comes into the world because people will not accept quote-unquote legitimate suffering that comes from being human. I love that. Ironically, this refusal of the necessary pain of being human brings to the person ten times more suffering in the long run. That's a great quote. Really great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, He's good. Another, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Two core things, also that uh, part of your book, and uh, and we can start with a quote from Annie Lamott, who I love. Annie Lamott is the great greatest. Uh, I, I've done podcasts with her, and we, you know, she's just something else. Uh, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are. But does not leave us where it found us. What a twist, eh? a turn of words.
1: Yeah, she's very clever. Very yeah, clever. really, yeah.
0: really much. Uh, but uh, yeah, grace, mystery of grace. So, I mean, when we I, again, I'm not a big fan of the word God, and uh, certainly not as an omnipresent somebody who does stuff, and uh, and then doesn't do stuff, which is why didn't you do that stuff? I mean, I'm just, uh, yeah, I have a hard time with that. Um, I guess I'm a little bit more attuned to the Buddhist uh, ideal there, although I come from a tradition of, uh, it's bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion and so on, but Maharaji was beyond any sect or any of that, and he, uh, yeah, so it was a completely different thing. But um, grace is certainly uh, a core, um, has a core relationship to the mystery. And, uh, and I, I really like, uh, we have a friend named uh, Joan Halifax, Roshi Joan Halifax. I don't know if you know Roshi. No. Uh, she's a, a, a Zen abbot in Santa Fe. She's a wonderful, wonderful spiritual teacher. And she talks about it a lot, about honoring the mystery, you know, and not running from it. And uh, so, Grace, in your own life, you've had a ton of it. And I, I, would, uh, I would have to suggest that that informs your relationship to the events in your life, including the suffering. No?
1: You know, I, I think that's true. I mean, you know, grace is a funny word. Because I think people have, everybody has a different definition of it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of (laughs) uh, like uh, one of the Supreme Court justices said, you know. I don't. I can't define porn, but I know it when I see it. You know? yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. Well, funny. I mean, I can't define grace, but I know it when I see it. And yeah. you know, Ben wrote a very small book uh, about Jack Kennedy after he was assassinated, called "That Special Grace," and that there there was this incredible graceful, graceful part about Jack Kennedy that you know, that drew people to him. I think that Ben was a very graceful person. I think that um, there, you know, there was grace in my taking care of Ben and my loving Ben and his loving me. Grace in the suffering of Quinn and, and yet watching him overcome all of his, watching him overcome so many of his disabilities. Uh, and, and I think I think we see it in in people's kindnesses, and I think we see it in in values and ethics and morals, uh, people caring for one another. Uh, I have to say that I think that in the last year since the election, uh, we have seen such a lack of grace uh, in our lives that I think it is it's been. Um, It's been really uh, almost traumatic because I, you know, one of the things that you could say grace is magic, you know, and so if I'm if my book is called Finding Magic, it means that you're looking for grace as well as magic. I mean, grace can be God, too. And so I I spend every single day looking for magic or looking for the transcendent or looking for grace. And I find it every day. I find something every day. And that, but I don't think you can find grace unless you're looking for it, because you have to you have to be able to recognize it. You have to be able to see it. Um, and I, you know, I uh, my son and his fiance, um, uh, she has a child by a five year old daughter by her. Uh, first marriage, and then they, they they got a dog together. This adorable King Charles Spaniel part poodle, named Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> because yeah. they're both fans. And one day I was in the kitchen in uh, Sunday morning, and they live in the house next door to mine. And Chloe came running in and was running around the kitchen playing hide and seek and hiding from me. And Teddy Roosevelt was following her, and they ran around and ran around, and then they left and and left the room. And I just felt this incredible feeling of grace, that there was just this wonderful feeling of joy and happiness that this innocent child and this adorable little dog had come in and just sprinkled fairy dust all over me and then walked out of the room. So, I mean, or the, the, you know, the incredible doctors at Children's Hospital who work and and spend so much time taking care of people or, you know, I mean, I, I never understand because I don't have it in me the kind of people who can go into the slums and live there and take care of the poor. And I just, I, you know, I just have, I have nothing but uh, awe and respect for people like that. But those things are what grace is about.
0: Yeah. For sure. Now, you've met so many uh, incredible people over in your life's journey being in Washington. And there was so everybody you know go out and get this book because uh, there, there's uh, quite a lot of anecdotes that are that would be fun for you to read. Uh, one of them for me was around Barry Goldwater, okay yeah. who was this yeah. Republican for those of you who don't know, he was a, a, a Republican leader. Back in the early seventies, late sixties, seventies, I guess, and my whole take on him was, you know, he's another Nixonish kind of bad guy, you know, and I, and then I'm reading this book, and you're going on about how heartful he is, and how warm and gracious and. Uh, I was like, oh, my God, here's a here's a case of getting this completely wrong and believing whatever the hell I was believing out there. But yeah. Who is Barry Goldwater? I mean, come on. Well,
1: he got such a bad rap. You know, he was a very close friend of Jack Kennedy's. Um, They adored each other. And when before Jack was assassinated, he was going to run for president again. And Barry was going to run against him. And their plan was that they were going to they were gonna uh, campaign on the same plane and that they would get off the plane and that Barry would make his speech and Jack would make his speech and they'd get all the crowds, both supporters from everybody out there making the speech and then they'd get back on the plane and take off for the next play. Really? Um, Yes. Oh my. Because, I mean, Barry had, I mean, he was incredibly decent, kind, honest. He had enormous integrity. He was he was he was a wonderful loving person. He was like a surrogate father to me and to my brother and sister. And and he actually lived with my parents when his wife got sick and went back to Arizona. He lived with them in their apartment. Went down to the country with them on the weekends. And um, I mean, I knew him really well. Ben got to be best friends with Barry, and they loved each other. And uh, I remember they were doing a twin gig out in um uh, Orange County, which is very conservative and the place was packed. Um, and it, it was Ben, a conversation with Ben Bradley and Barry Goldwater and Barry got up and he said, I know you're all here thinking you're going to see a bloodletting and you're going to be very disappointed. Mm. <laughs> and they had this love in, mm. um, no, I mean, he was just a wonderful, he got a very, very bad rap, um. Really? And, you know, Barry, I mean, he he said a couple of things that he was, you know what he was, he was a libertarian. He was born when Arizona wasn't even a state. And he was a cowboy. You know, he was, he was, he believed that everybody should, I mean, he was pro-choice for one thing. You know, he was pro-gay. Um, uh, I mean, he believed that people should live their own lives. And so, I mean, he was very anti-government in that way because you know he'd grown up and arizona had been independent um but i mean he was also very tolerant of of any religious point of view um and and respected people he was a he was an honorary uh, native american uh, loved by the native americans and i mean he was just a great guy i think if one of the things he had was that he was so Uh, accepting of people and so respectful of people that he didn't have a great, he he wasn't very discriminating about his friends. He was nice to everybody. And if people were nice to him, he liked them. And so I think oftentimes the choice of the people he had around him was not the best. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what I would say that he didn't Mm -hmm. choose the best people around him. Mm -hmm. And because he, he was a conservative, I think he drew a lot of people who, had a different view of conservatives, a like conservatism than he did.
0: Mm. Okay, thanks for straightening me out on Barry Goldwater so. <laughs> God. Oh, boy. Oh, do you want to tell a fun story from the book? Sure. Uh, the dog shit story. You got to tell that story. I love that story.
1: Oh, you mean the Buddhists? Yeah. My, yeah. My when you went to Tibet. <laughs> well, uh, I took a trip after I... Uh, took over the after i started the website i decided um uh, i got a flyer in the mail saying you know a three-week trip uh, around the world to study the great faiths and we were going to go to 13 places and study all the faiths and i thought you know was don graham asked me to start the website and i said don i don't know anything about religion i don't know anything about the internet he said the same thing ben did well nobody's perfect but I so I, I got Don, John Meacham, who was a religion scholar, to be my co-moderator, which saved me. But the thing was that um, I realized that I, I couldn't run this website if I didn't know anything about religion. And I'd done reading and all that. But so I took this trip <laughs> and we ended up at one place we went to Tibet. And so we had a uh, and Tibet, of course, is now is not the Dalai Lama. It's part of China. And, um and the Chinese have basically tried to eradicate the Tibetans a lot of them escaped to India uh, and brought in a lot of the brought a lot of the Han Chinese and and in and and, and, and Lhasa, which is the capital is, like a Potemkin village. I mean, it's a it's sort of a fake village that looks like an old Tibetan village and it's just a total tourist trap. You know, there is the monastery up at the top of the hill and all that. So it's great to see, but, and it's completely, I mean, on every corner are Chinese soldiers and everybody's spying on everybody and nobody feels safe. Um, and so we had this, I we had a guide who was absolutely adorable and I can't remember his Chinese name, but anyway, I, I spent a lot of time with the guys on those trips because I learned so much from them. We were, So I was asking about his family and, and he was very open, but he said, you know, I can't tell you very much because we're not allowed to you know, talk to people. And so anyway, at one point I asked him about his name and he said, well, in Chinese, it means dog shit. And I said, what what do you mean, dog shit? He said, "Well, that's my name. It's dog shit." And I said, "Why would your parents name you dog shit?" And he said, "Well, you know, um, when I was born, um, they uh, they named me i now can't, can't remember—but something like good luck." Mm. And he said, "I was sick from the day I was born, and I was sick for years and years." And they, the doctors couldn't do anything. They thought I was going to die. And finally, my parents realized that they had really tempted the gods by giving me this name of good luck or good fortune or whatever else. And he said, the only way that we, they were going to get the gods off my case <laughs> was to change my name. And so he said, they changed my name to dog shit. So the gods, gods would not be tempted to, <laughs> to right. hurt me. Uh-huh. And he said, and I got better the next day. And I've never had a sick day in my life. Uh-huh. And I said, well, don't your friends um, find it? I mean, isn't it a little embarrassing when you introduce yourself as dog shit? He said, no, no, no. Everybody understands why. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's so great. <laughs> That's the greatest story. So everybody out there, if you need to change a name, (laughs) you know what to do now. Oh, God. Uh, And it's such a wonderful book, Uh, everybody. Finding Magic, uh, a spiritual memoir by Sally Quinn. And uh, just one more little quote, which is, again, to me, it's the essence of of the book. It's the essence of everything I understand uh, in my own life. I have faith in the power of love. That's the significance of the stories in this book. Ultimately, loving is the most important thing a person can do. Giving and receiving love is encapsulated in another of my favorite words, albeit a rarely used one. And I've never heard of this word, by the way. Redemancy. Redimancy? Redimancy? Redima- Redimancy. Redimancy, which means the act of loving in return. George Sand was right when she wrote. There is only one happiness in life, to love and be loved. So beautiful. Great, great, great book. uh, Everybody, you can go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. You'll see the uh, show notes and all of the links to be able to get the book and we're going to put up that film um, also of uh, Ben Bradley, the doc that Sally talked about early in the podcast, because I want to see it as well. Oh, so it's fantastic. We'll Good. find it and link it up. It's probably on Netflix, Good. if not on YouTube.
1: Good. It's called uh, The Newspaper Man.
0: And The Newspaper Man. Okay. Mm-hmm. And also on faith, is it, it? It continues, does it not?
1: It does continue. We're trying to revamp it and make it into an app for a phone. Yeah, so yeah, it's that's a little perfect. On, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, check out on faith, and also, uh, is there a website or anything that people can? Uh, no, gravitate? I mean, I
1: I have a, a you know I, I have a, a sort of a facebook fan page but Uh i don't have
0: a website that's all that's needed these days is facebook fan pages (laughs) Uh,
1: not that i look at it but i i'm I'm told it's there
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay uh great to hang with you here sally i really appreciate you taking the time great thank you and uh, for a
1: wonderful interview
0: I will uh, look forward to the next book around uh, how to do the marriage properly and be successful. Coming soon. Coming soon. (laughs) Uh, This is Raghu Marcus and Mind Rolling and Be Here Now Network and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. Thank you.